Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Britta Gross and Jonathan Lester, thank you so much for joining us here at Intelligence Squared. We we are going to be taking on the question of electric vehicles. And, and the way that we're phrasing the question is, is your electric vehicle helping the planet? And the your is a little bit rhetorical. I'm not sure which of either of you actually drives an electric vehicle, but you kind of get the point. So what we'd like to do is see how each of you basically would answer that question. So first, Britta Gross, your managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute's Carbon-Free Mobility Global Program. On the question, is your electric vehicle helping the planet? Are you a yes or a no? Yes, electric vehicles are good for the planet. Not only do they cut local environmental emissions because of the zero tailpipe, but they also dramatically reduce carbon in our overall system. They're great for the planet. Thank you, Britta Gross. Now, Jonathan Lesser, same question to you. You are a fellow of the Manhattan Institute, president of Continental Economics. You uh, you actually authored the Manhattan Institute's 2018 report, The High Cost of Electric Vehicles, which I think is telling us where you're going to go on this question. But are you a yes or no on the question of, is your electric vehicle helping the planet? Uh, no, it's not, because Contrary to what uh, Ms. Gross said, the carbon reductions compared to new internal combustion vehicles are so minimal that it will have no impact on world climate. Okay, thank you, Jonathan, and also Britta. So we see where the two of you stand on this, and now we want to dive in, go into more depth. And Britta, Jonathan just said that your your claim is false, but we didn't really get to hear fully your claim because you kept it nice and tight. Take some time now and tell us your argument in support of the argument that electric vehicles are helping the planet. Yeah, thank you, John. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think that Mr. Lesser is really stating a very minority held position. When you look at the overwhelming evidence from the scientific community, there's broad agreement, broad alignment globally, in fact, that we have to electrify the cars, the trucks, and the buses that we drive. And so whether the motivation is national security or whether it's economic competitiveness, the environmental benefits stand. Um, These EVs deliver win, win, win to address some of these very, very big challenges that we're facing together. And these wins are so compelling that we've actually never enjoyed a moment like we're living in now where government, industry, and business are aligning around the electrification of the transportation sector. And that happens when there is broad consensus that these vehicles matter, that technology matters, and consumers love these vehicles. So you sort of put all these wins together and it is very, very good for the planet. And there's a major reduction in carbon reductions, uh, in carbon emissions because of these vehicles. And what's driving that consensus, Britta, just in terms of the data, the science behind the vehicles and their impact on the climate? Let's take a look at the authorities on carbon emissions. Look at what CARB, the California Air Resources Board says, the US EPA, the, the Environmental Protection Agency. Look at what UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists, Keep adding these voices. It's the analysis. It's the modeling. It's the it's the understanding and recognition that, for example, here in the United States, transportation is the number one sector emitting carbon in the country, more so than the power grid, believe it or not, because the power grid over time has been reducing the amount of coal on the grid and introducing more renewables. Transportation is number one. It emits 29% of the carbon in our entire system here in the U.S. 90% of those emissions are from on-road transportation, the 270 million cars, trucks, and buses. So it matters a lot how these vehicles move around and what they're emitting as they drive every single mile on the road. And keep in mind that every mile a gasoline vehicle drives on the road is emitting about a pound of carbon, according to the US EPA. 
So it does matter what's being emitted out of the tailpipe of these vehicles. And of course, it matters how the energy is being produced to charge these vehicles. Of course, the grid's getting cleaner every single day that we sit here. Your point being that the electric grid is the source of energy for these cars and that the grid itself is getting cleaner over time. Absolutely. Absolutely right. All right. I want to get Jonathan Lesser into the conversation. Now, Jonathan, you've heard the basics of Britta's point of view on this, her argument. So what's your response to that? Well, my response is that what she said is completely false. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, you're simply substituting fossil fuels, you know, gasoline that would be used in a burned in a vehicle for natural gas, coal, power that's being used to generate the electricity that powers your EV. Ms. Gross lives in Florida, for example. 75% of the electricity generated in Florida, according to the Energy Information Administration, is produced with natural gas and 7% is coal. Only 3% is solar. And when most people charge their EVs at night, you don't get any solar power. The proper comparison, and I point this out in my Manhattan suit, is not between a new EV and an existing internal combustion vehicle. The proper comparison is between new EVs and new internal combustion vehicles. Based on the mix of generating resources, the carbon savings are, are minimal. The other thing that's odd is that if consumers love EVs so much, and they're so wonderful. Why do we have to subsidize them heavily, which is benefiting the wealthy, because that's who buys EVs? And why do we have to force consumers to buy them through various mandates and bans on internal combustion vehicles that states like California, New York, New Jersey are imposing? Why do you have to force consumers to buy something when it's such a superior product? That's nonsense. All right. You've made several points there, and I want to go through them one by one by, by letting Britta respond to some of them. But your, your first point was that in terms of the generation of the electricity that is used to power these vehicles, you're making the argument is still very, very carbon emissive, that the power plants themselves, by and large, are still putting an awful lot of carbon into the atmosphere so that Perhaps the vehicle itself is not emitting a lot of carbon, but the power plant that powers the vehicle is emitting a lot of carbon. I think that's how you're making the argument. And I want to take that critique back to Britta. Yeah, the numbers just don't stack up. Let me talk a little bit about coal on the grid. I, I actually, in my spare time, actually sit on the commission of the Orlando utility. And there we have a roadmap to actually shut down all remaining coal plants by 2030. In fact, we're going to probably close them down by 2027. So this is the trend around the country. This is the trend that we've been seeing since 2010, when coal plant after coal plant after coal plant is coming off the grid because of this broad recognition that coal is bad. There are heavy emissions of carbon from these coal generating plants and that they have to be substituted just as quickly as possible with solar and wind. Let me just reference what the Union of Concerned Scientists say in their modeling about carbon emissions. They say in their most recent work, even considering how electricity is generated on the grid, that an average EV produces fewer emissions than gas powered vehicles on any electric grid in the country. Let me say that again, on any electric grid in the country, EVs produce fewer emissions than gas-powered vehicles. And this is even considering how electricity is generated and how it charges your vehicle night after night, day after day. So it matters how electricity is produced, but the grid is getting cleaner and cleaner every day. And you cannot say the same about gasoline, that once it's extracted and once it's burned, you don't recover anything and it's gone. And we have to dig deeper and introduce new technologies to, to find more petroleum to put into our gasoline vehicles. Britta, how... How far away are we from the grid going fully sustainable energy sources? They're sweeping the country are utilities that are talking about net zero grids in 2050. So by 2050, we're looking at net zero. At OUC, the Orlando utility is targeting something that's you know common enough around the country. And that is we're looking at about a 50% cut in emissions by 2030. And that is everyone's climate goal. Experts tell us that to get on a climate pathway that contains temperatures to about one and a half degrees C, we've got to contain carbon in the next 
eight years to about 50% of what we're emitting today. That's a tall order, but the grid has to act, buildings have to be electrified, and the transportation system has to be electrified as well. Okay. I, I, I want to take back to Jonathan Lester then just your point in opposition to his point that the grid is dirty. Your argument is it's dirty, but it's changing. It's going away from dirty pretty fast. Jonathan, in other words, if, if Greta is right and, and 30 years from now, 25 years from now, the grid is no longer dirty, that would mean, okay, it, we, it's better to be in a world with electric vehicles. So I'd just like you to take on the point about the pacing of this transition. Well, the idea that the entire uh, electric demand in the United States, which will be doubled or tripled because of electric vehicles, can be met with just renewable energy, wind and solar, is simply false. It's not possible given existing technology. Uh, in New York, they're talking about a transition to reduce emissions, as Ms. Gross says, uh, by 50% by 2030. And to do that, they say we need something called Dispatchable Emissions-Free Resources, or DEFRs. And they say they need about 10% of their capacity to be DEFRs. The only problem is DEFRs don't exist. They're talking about hydrogen-powered, basically combustion turbines that are powered by hydrogen, except the only way to cost-effective way to manufacture hydrogen today is by burning natural gas. Burning natural gas, convert it to hydrogen, shoving it to a turbine makes absolutely no environmental or economic sense. I don't know what Union of Concerned Scientists study is. Well, for my study, I compared new vehicle emissions limits set by the Environmental Protection Agency versus EVs and what the power mix of generating plants through the year 2050 will be according to the Energy Information Administration. Uh, now, RMI beforehand has criticized me for using the EIA's forecast methodology, but I used it because it's transparent. So, I mean, this is just, this is just pie in the sky. The battery technology, it doesn't exist. The supply of bad materials for batteries to electrify all transportation and the storage requirements needed to run an electric grid with just intermittent wind and solar, it doesn't exist. And so, yes, you can assume that technology is suddenly going to deliver that, uh, but technological improvement doesn't typically happen on a set schedule. And so unless you plan for the Starship Enterprise to deliver some sort of new generating technology to us in the next 20 years, uh, it's just not gonna happen. This is just simply pie in the sky, unrealistic thinking or magical thinking, as my colleague Mark Mills at Manhattan Institute calls it. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US. More of our conversation when we return. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's get back to our conversation. Let's go to something more current like the EPA's website. The US EPA has also addressed these two points about the electricity grid generating electricity to charge vehicles. And they've even gone back and looked at the, the use of the electricity grid to create and produce batteries used in electric vehicles is sort of this, the big part on these electric vehicles that's uh, different than what's on a gas and electric vehicle. Both of these are viewed as myths by the EPA. Go look at the EPA's website. Two myths specifically addressing the use of electricity in the process of producing and charging electric vehicles. And in both cases, they say these are myths. In fact, in the end, their conclusion is that EVs are better for the climate than gasoline combustion engines. So I, I think we should just look at 
at, at current data. We should look at what what the latest data su- suggests we do. And again, this is the broad, overwhelming consensus of the scientific community. I agree. We don't just turn a spigot and we have all of the energy storage we need to put renewables on the grid to get up to you know 50% first and then and 100% at some point. We don't have a spigot to turn for electrifying all the vehicles. This takes time. It takes a method. It takes a process. It takes the concerted effort of government, industry, and businesses. And this is what's starting to happen right now. And so we need a lot of storage. We're going to need battery production capacity here in the United States for the vehicles themselves. And we're going to need battery production capacity for storage on the grid. And the beautiful thing is we've got two blank sheets of paper. The grid is revolutionizing and the transportation system is revolutionizing too. And we are helping the two industries together to make these incremental So, Britta, you laid out several targets there, targets for change and improvement. I I just want to come back to Jonathan and say, Jonathan, in principle, if those targets were meetable, would would that be changing your argument? Or are you really arguing that there still is a a big place for the combustion engine in, in society? My position is quite simple. If people want to buy electric vehicles, you know, I don't know if Ms. Gross drives an electric vehicle or not. They should be able to do so. But what you should not have is mandates to force their purchase, subsidies for their purchase, for the charging stations, for the charging infrastructure, for solar panels that uh, are used to charge them at home. If electric vehicles are so incredibly wonderful and fantastic, people will buy them without subsidies and mandates. And so it simply makes no sense to say, oh, this is just a transformational technology, it's wonderful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then say, and we must force people to, to buy them. So I, I understand you're you're addressing the politics of the moment, and I do want to return to that topic, but I, I'm just basically trying to understand whether you think that in, say, 30, 50 years, that all of us driving electrical vehicles could well be a good place to be if that could happen. It, I don't know. It might be. No, no. Okay. It, you know, I, I think there's so many issues that uh, need to be addressed that I don't see that. It, it, it's simply not feasible. Mm-hmm. All, all right. So, Britta Gross, I want to take back the point that, that Jonathan was just making about, about the mandates and the incentives. His argument being uh, essentially the, 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 this would be regulation overpowering the marketplace and individual choice, uh, particularly if there are mandates as opposed to incentives. But incentives are also there, and incentives cost taxpayer dollars. And he's arguing that this is not this is this is not wise. This is not a way to go in in trying to generate greater adoption of electric vehicles. I'd just like you to take that on. Yeah, I think that's I think these are this is a really interesting area to talk about because I know that there's sort of this political divide. And I think that I think we have to very carefully look at what are early market government incentives and mandates trying to do. And what they're trying to do is drive certainty into the market. And that's the number one most important thing that business and industry wants. They just want certainty. Where are you guys trying to go by 2030? Where are you trying to go by 2050? Once that certainty is understood, then business knows where to put its investments. And so when I view things like uh, the EV tax credit for $7,500 today, that is to begin to provide certainty for the market It's to drive adoption behavior so that consumers are more inclined to adopt the technology. For me, it comes down to the technology is so good. And I'm saying over and over again that consumers love these vehicles and fleet operators love these vehicles because they're cheaper to operate. Fuel is cheaper when you're driving on electricity versus gas. It's inevitable that we go to electric vehicles. However, not fast enough. The pace we need to be on to get to carbon targets in 2030 are just so significant, the 50% reduction, that we have to do something to spur the market faster than it naturally wants to go. Well, I mean, but that, but I, I think in, in a certain sense, you might be making John's point. If the if 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 it is so popular, if it's so obvious, if it's so necessary, where is the consumer in jumping into this onto this bandwagon? Why does the consumer need these pushes or these pulls if it's a regu- regulation? If if as John's saying, if it's such a clear-cut case, why aren't we seeing consumers be solving the problem on their own by going for electric vehicles in large, much larger numbers? 
And so we are seeing some of that, right? You look at California, right? 16% of all new vehicle purchases are electric vehicles. So you are seeing this where there's where there's high levels of awareness, where there are a lot of programs to get the word out, to talk about incentives, to talk about like, where can you charge your vehicle when, when charging infrastructure is clearly available, not only at your home, but at work and out in the public space. This is a paradigm shift for everyone. As much as you might love an electric vehicle, you still think to yourself, well, but is there enough charging infrastructure out there? How often would I use a public mm-hmm. charger versus home? And it's getting past those hurdles. And what we're talking about investing on the government side is just sort of the market starter. It's a start for the market when larger sums are going to be needed, vastly larger sums are going to be needed from the private sector to sustain and build the market that we ultimately will shift actually all of transportation to electric. Jonathan, your turn. Well, um, if everyone's going to buy an EV anyway, then the the incremental benefits are minuscule. And I showed that in my Manhattan Institute report. That's just basic economics. Uh, the government didn't help build the the infrastructure of uh, you know gasoline service stations. You know why is it needed for uh, EVs? And, and again, you get into this equity issue of the people who buy EVs are tend to be much wealthier than the average American, and so you're larding huge subsidies on these on these people. One reason consumers aren't buying EVs because they're really expensive. They're about $10,000 more on average than an average internal combustion vehicle. Uh, Lithium prices, the main ingredient for batteries, have gone up 1,000% last year. When you start looking at uh, the shortages of steel, uh, lithium, uh, you know, the same people who are pounding the pavement or, you know, pounding their fists for electric vehicles and mandates are the same ones who don't want any mines uh, rare earth mines in this country who don't care that cobalt, another major ingredient for batteries, is being mined in the Congo primarily using child and slave labor. And that's that's based on an Amnesty International report. You know, you're just exporting pollution. Uh, China controls most of the rare earth metal market and production. The pollution in China from the refining of rare earths is horrific. Do environmentalists even care about that? Um, so it's just, you know, this is just, I, I don't know, I find this just silly. This argument is so silly because it, it's like this, you know, energy comes from pixie dust and, and the energy fairy is going to provide millions upon millions of electric batteries. Uh, Tesla's Gigafactory produces about 100,000 batteries a year. Uh, you're going to need to to run a grid on electricity and produce all the batteries for electric vehicles. You're going to need hundreds and hundreds of gigafactories, and there simply aren't the raw materials to even manufacture them. All right, I, I just want to step in. I just want to step in just in terms of tone here, and and encourage you to not have to use pejorative terms like silly and mocking terms like pixie dust. I don't think Brit is making arguments that are so fatuous as that. But I would like to give her a chance to respond to the substance of what you're saying, which is essentially that let's start with the batteries and the sourcing of the material for the batteries. It's well documented, in fact, that uh, cobalt, which is a critical factor in these batteries, is coming primarily from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where, in fact, as Jonathan said, Amnesty has pointed out that slave labor and child labor is being used to get this stuff into the batteries of the cars that Americans are riding around in. That's a real concern, Britta. What's your response to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about the supply chain because, of course, over the last couple of years, all of us have learned how important supply chain is during COVID. Um, and I think it's really important to look at, at what's happening here for batteries and how does this change? How does the supply chain change, change because of, of, our, of our move to electric vehicles? Um, this is one of the reasons why the administration just invoked the Defense Protection Act. They are looking to encourage the domestic production of these minerals and the processing of these minerals in the country. In fact, the DOE just offered a a loan of over $100 million to a Louisiana plant that processes graphite that's used in the production of anodes for for these vehicle batteries. This is exactly sort of this capacity building, this domestic manufacturing ability that's really, really important. And, And I'll go back to something I said in the very, very beginning, that this is a huge global competitiveness challenge, but an opportunity. The the administration currently recognizes that. They understand what it means to 
move the market, to set the goalposts, to understand where we have to get because the climate consensus is there. We've got to make drastic reductions in carbon. And you have to do this by addressing lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, and manganese. Those are sort of the top five battery materials. And they're looking at all of those. And all of those are part of the, sort of the system. But the, but the part of Jonathan's argument that you're not addressing is the, is the idea that the production of these batteries for the American market, for the markets in developed countries, is causing harm to less developed countries, countries that are more vulnerable, both in terms of, as he said, exporting pollution, exporting carbon, and also just uh, mistreating people. And, 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 and that, as I said, it's a serious concern, I think should be part of the conversation and would like yeah. you to take that on. I mean, this is, a, this is very heavily discussed in the automotive sector and the battery manufacturing sector, this issue. Yes, you're right. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the number one producer of cobalt, for example, in the world. But behind the Congo is Australia, number two, and number six is Canada. And Canada is wrapping up its efforts also to mine for more cobalt. So, I mean, some of this is supply and demand, right? An economist also understands supply and demand, and we just haven't had that demand. Now it's certain that these electric vehicles are coming. And so now we have to put those supply chains and chains and uh, supply chains in place and make sure we are not doing harm to some of these companies, uh, to some of these countries and, and not exploiting folks because of where these materials are found today. Try to be as diverse as possible and try to be as close to home as possible to be really honest. Jonathan, um, can I make a point? Yeah, please do. I, I want to just make a point about the Defense Production Act. It's really an empty gesture. And the reason it's an empty gesture is because it's not the administration and environmentalists are blocking permitting of new mines. And so as long as you block the development of new mines in Nevada, in Minnesota, uh, in Alaska, um, you're not going to increase production. Uh, so it, again, the, the invoking the Defense Production Act is just simply a meaningless gesture. Yeah, I would. I would. The only thing I would suggest there is that, you know, there's the there's the mining of materials, but there's also the processing. And China really controls the processing of all these materials. And that is equally important here, that that become uh, a domestic capability here. So it's it's not just the mining of materials, I think. And we do have to keep an open mind about where these materials are coming from. Don't forget the processing of these materials, which could actually theoretically be done anywhere. And China is really dominating this globally. Does that concern you, Britta? Uh, yeah, it, it concerns a lot of folks. I mean, you know, what one thing about electric vehicles and, and why are we so aggressive, not only on the on the climate and the carbon reduction opportunity and the zero tailpipe opportunity locally for, for air quality, but it's also this global competitiveness. I mean, it's very clear Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio, when he was chairing uh, the small business committee in the Senate a few years ago, he issued a report that talked about 2025 China and their intent to dominate a number of sectors, among them transportation. This is an opportunity for China to leapfrog over combustion engine vehicles because they, they were never really able to compete globally in that sector. And now they want to compete here in electric vehicles. And when you start to lose new technology, this ability to compete on battery technology, on on the on the you know mineral processing, on all the things that go into electric vehicles and what it means for autonomous vehicles, et cetera, you start to lose a lot of capacity to play globally in that landscape. And this is important. This is important to the economy and our gross domestic product every single year. Uh, automotive contributes about three, three and a half percent of GDP um, every single year. And that's an important sector. And manufacturing, we know, has its tentacles and many other related industries uh, in the United States. So it is important. It does concern me. Jonathan Lesser, same question to you, and I and I think this was this was a place where we wanted to get is that China is absolutely demonstrating that they had the intention of being first in the world in electric vehicles, and China is attempting to be first in the world at a lot of other things that concern us. Does this sector concern you if China gets ahead of everybody else? Well, I I, I agree with Miss Gross. It is a concern, uh, but I, again, I think the prospects for expanding. Uh, supply of material, raw materials in this country are minimal. And therefore you're dealing, you know, if, if it's manufacturing and, and processing, yes, that's important, but then you're dealing with economies of scale and scope. Whether that can be overcome, I don't know. 
you know, it's the, the real problem is that as you increase the demand for these materials by orders of magnitude, the prices are going to go up and they're going to get very expensive. Uh, there's a recent uh, International Energy Agency study about the supply of, of materials needed for EVs. And it's a fairly disconcerting study in terms of what's going to happen to the, the prices. So, you know, yeah, it'd be great if we could develop uh, more processing capacity here. But I suspect that environmentalists will uh, howl in anger when those new plants are developed because they won't like them. Maybe maybe I could also just offer a couple thoughts on, on a couple of these questions about supply chain and, and just scale, the scale of what this is going to require. One thing I'll point out that automakers view getting the price out of these vehicles, the cost out of these vehicles as the number one objective, right? I mean, they've got batteries, they're safe, they're durable. All these things are coming along really, really nicely. But the price, of course, they want to get these vehicles down into a lower price point. And I'll point out that one of the ways you do that is getting rid of the raw materials and some of the more expensive raw materials. So GM announced gee, I think it's now two years ago that their new generation, this Ultium generation of batteries today on the vehicles now uses 70% less cobalt than the previous generation. Tesla said something very similar. So that is the objective is that the batteries you're going to see and know in five years or in 10 years do not represent what we're looking at today. They are going to use fewer minerals and materials. Uh, they'll be better performing, denser, all the things that you need to do as part of an engineering engineering process. Those kinds of things are going to happen. So again, Jeff, and, and if I could please, just, please go on, Britt. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to, I was going to sort of swerve over to the utility comment before about how much load this is going to be on the grid hmm. and what that means. And let me just point out that yes, there is a load that's coming to the grid, but there's also capacity on the grid today, right? At night, there's not a lot of load on the grid. And the beauty of, of electric vehicles is that they are the biggest, smartest, most flexible load to come to the grid, potentially, arguably ever. And so here's a load that you can actually command to charge at night or command to charge at noon when the sun is shining and, and California is trying to offload some solar. So I think there are real opportunities on the grid. Let me also point out what utilities tell me all the time. And that is that in the 50s, the utilities adapted to the electrification of kitchens. I mean, in, in just years, in just a few years, within a decade. And in the 70s, they adapted to air conditioning in places that were unheard of, Arizona, California, et cetera. So the, the utilities understand their business. They understand growth. They understand capacity. And, and this is the next big load to come. And they will treat this as they have every other sort of generational change in what the grid has to be able to do. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More when we return. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our discussion. So, Jonathan, you are arguing that EVs are not the be-all and end-all, that, that they'll fall well short of the aspirations that Britta Gross is outlining for them, as she cites many other scientific authorities on that point. But your analysis is different, and your thinking is different. And I would like to know where your thinking goes on okay, if it's not going to be electric vehicles that help us reduce the carbon output of transportation in the United States, what would, what is the solution? Where do you think we should be going with this? Well, I'm not sure that reducing carbon emissions to zero is that uh, significant an issue anyway, but um, the way I would address it is first by supporting nuclear power uh, which provides reliable, emissions-free electricity and unlike wind and solar, is not intermittent. And so you don't need all the storage capacity uh, and all the, the environmental impacts of that. Um, 
you know, I think internal combustion vehicles are getting more fuel efficient and so carbon reductions are going down anyway. Um, you know, the switch to natural gas from coal uh, happened because natural gas became much more cost effective. And so, you know, that's, that's the single largest source of reductions in U.S. carbon emissions since 2005, is the switch from coal to natural gas. And so what, unfortunately, the current administration is trying to limit uh, uh, supplies of new natural gas by limiting uh, uh, oil and gas permits. So that's not helping. You know, I just think it, as, as I think John Kerry himself said, he's the climate czar for the U.S. Uh, under the current administration, that even if the U.S. reduced its carbon emissions to zero, it won't have any impact on the climate without looking internationally. And, and it's quite clear that you know, uh, developing countries like China, the U.S., Russia, they're not going to reduce their carbon emissions to zero because they don't want to sacrifice their economic growth. It's not going to happen. So it sounds as though a good deal of your our, uh, position uh, challenging the uh, the utility and the usefulness of uh, electric vehicles comes down to what you said at the beginning of your comment just now, that you're not all that worked up about trying to reduce carbon overall. Do I have that correct? Because that's that's pretty fundamental to your argument, it would seem. No, that's not my argument. My argument is that electric vehicles aren't going to be the transformative way to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, the net reduction in carbon emissions from electric vehicles is quite small, and the cost investment is going to be massive. So it's not a particularly cost-effective way to reduce carbon emissions. Are there other ways, for example, such as supporting deeper, broader, further development of public transit that you would support and do support and argue for? Well, I, you know, again, I think public transit is fine. It doesn't really help. You know, I live in a rural area. There are no, there's no public transit within 30 miles of here. Uh, it doesn't help people who have to go to work, contractors, plumbers. Uh, they can't use buses or Uber, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't get an Uber where I live if I tried. Um, so yeah, you can use public trans transit, you can walk or bicycle as Ms. Gross suggests, sure, that's great. But uh, for a lot of people in the country who don't live in dense cities, um, that's not much of an option. And Britta Gross, I'm guessing, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, that you're suggestion for those individuals would be electric, individual electric cars. Yeah. I mean, look, 250 million of the 270 million vehicles on the road are cars, light duty vehicles, light duty vehicles. Trucking make up, makes up the vast majority of the rest, but, but, you know, we're almost like at 90% of all the emissions, carbon emissions and emissions from our transportation system are coming from the cars and light duty vehicle trucks. Uh, that are on the roads. And so it makes a big difference. In fact, I mean, the the new, the average new gas vehicle fuel economy today is 31 miles per gallon. A new truck, they're averaging about 21 miles per gallon. And if you take a look at 31 miles per gallon on average for these cars and compare it to an EV, the, 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 the internal combustion engine vehicle, that gasoline vehicle actually needs to get 88 miles per gallon on average across the country, to be as clean as an electric vehicle. And that's, again, another study by the Union of Concerned Scientists looking at this trade-off between EVs and, and trying to demonstrate for everyone, here's what the math says, here's how much it matters. And in fact, if you're operating on a really clean grid like uh, upstate New York that has a lot of hydro on its grid, you'd have to have like a gas vehicle of like 231 miles per gallon to compete and outperform from, from a cleanliness and a carbon uh, standpoint to outperform the EV. So no, it, the most important thing we can do is electrify and, and maybe just this comment about forcing consumers. No one's forcing consumers. Um, what I can agree is that there just aren't a lot of models out on the road, right? We've we've been looking at smaller sedans and, and you know, up until now, since EVs were basically introduced in 2010, again, in this next generation. 
And and when you look at what's coming, I mean, what just yesterday was the Ford F-150 Lightning announced. I mean, who doesn't recognize the name F-150? Every American, every fleet operator understands the utility of that vehicle and what it can mean. So there's no forcing Americans into these cars. It's awareness and driving, driving more models into the market. And that comes with confidence. And that's where signals can be sent by the government, for example. Well, Jonathan Lesser, I, I think by by forcing, it may have been my paraphrasing of what you said, but I think your point is that there are states passing laws that are going to be banning the the introduction in, in 10, 15 years from now and the further production of, uh, of non-electric vehicles. And you're also talking about the fact that government subsidies for purchases of vehicles comes from the treasury and all of us are paying into that treasury. And if we're not one of the people who can afford to buy one of those cars, we don't get that benefit. So there, there, there is some compulsion going on. Go ahead. Well, absolutely. And it's actually worse than that. For, for example, Ms. Gross mentioned that the electric utilities and the grid. Well, for, to have charging infrastructure and electric vehicles at home, you're going to have to have massive investments in the local distribution system. And, and that's the poles and wires people see running down their street. Um, the way costs are allocated, that's going to be paid by all residential consumers, including many who can't afford electric vehicles. So there's uh, there's a fundamental equity issue here that all this government money is primarily going to the wealthiest Americans, which I simply believe is wrong. But until the cars get cheaper, that is, when the cars get cheaper, when there's obviously when there's but, scale, but they're not getting they're not getting cheaper, John. Tesla has raised its prices three times this year. Um, it, the average cost of an EV this year, or currently, is fifty-six thousand, compared to about forty-five thousand for a new internal combustion vehicle. They're not low cost, and as the demand increases for electric vehicles and all the materials needed to manufacture them, then their cost is going to go up. And if you mandate, if you mandate that consumers must buy your product. When you have additional market power, you can raise your prices. And, and that's what I fully expect to see. Prices are going to increase. Yeah, maybe I could uh, maybe I could offer just my thoughts on this, too, because I think you've, you've pointed out a couple of very interesting things here. Let me just start with the number of models in the market that are more affordable. So today, um, I think there are six there are six EV models that are priced less than $30,000. There are 25 priced less than $40,000. And let me give you some perspective. The average transaction price for a new vehicle today is $47,000 for new cars and trucks. That has significantly increased. And so we have to keep sort of keep both in mind that new cars are not purchased by sort of average Americans. Uh, 90% of new car buyers, all new car buyers own their homes, et cetera. So uh, it's really important to keep this in mind. Let me also point out that battery costs are coming down, which is why they're able to start putting batteries in some of these sort of larger, more affordable vehicles, relatively affordable vehicles like the F-150, like the Chevy Silverado coming. 80% reduction. There's been an 80% reduction in the cost of batteries in the last 10 years. My date is three years old on that one. I haven't looked in three years, but 80% reduction. So they're desperately looking to drive these costs down. And the last thing I'll say about this is that while the upfront cost is maybe still there on, on, on some vehicles, again, keep in mind that $47,000 for all new vehicles in the market today on average, keep in mind that operating and driving every mile on electricity versus gasoline saves you about one third the cost of driving on gasoline. So it's much cheaper. And that's why fleet operators like FedEx, UPS, Amazon really are interested in electric vehicles. It's not. These are economic decisions for them too. So one third the cost of driving on gasoline. And we're talking about $4 gas on average around the country right now. Well, let's talk a little bit, just to wrap up the conversation here, uh, faith in innovation. Uh, I want to see where you are on that, Jonathan, because I think that's the point that Britta is making, that everything that she's premising her argument on is that technology is going to figure out a lot of these things, including uh, finding different sources for the material needed for batteries, including uh, further transitioning the power grid to uh, to non-carbon emission technology, and including 
uh, just overall making these vehicles uh, cheaper, easier to sustain, getting the infrastructure put in place uh, for for charging stations so that more and more uh, individuals will want to buy these things. That there's a, she has a belief in innovation being a, a way to to address all of this. I want to know where you are on that as well. Well, I believe in technological innovation. I don't think technical technological innovation is spurred by the government. Um, you know, that's the the again. I have no problem at all if, if you know Miss Gross wants to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, more power to her. Uh, if if consumers want to buy them, great. I think that's wonderful. That that's what markets are all about. But it should not be it should not be done through mandates. And I believe the mandates and subsidies, and it's not only subsidies for electric vehicles, it's subsidies for wind and solar power, even though uh, those advocates say, oh, it's cheaper than any, it's the cheapest source of electricity. Well, then why do you have to subsidize it? Um, so, you know, again, yeah, let let the market innovate on its own pace. Uh, it will do that, as Ms. Gross points out. Um, you know, without government mandates. So, so Jonathan, if, for example, it was proposed that there be subsidies for lower income individuals to buy electric vehicles, even used electric vehicles, you would, that would not be something that would fly with you. Uh, I would prefer that there are no subsidies. You know, I think government subsidies are inefficient. They, they have a net economic loss. Um, you know, you can't subsidize your way to wealth and prosperity. It's impossible. That's that's free lunch economics. Um, you know, again, I, I, I would just let the market innovate. Uh, you know, if electric vehicles are so wonderful and the innovation is happening so fast as, as Ms. Uh, Gross claims, then you don't need any of the government programs. All right. And Britta Gross, just one more time back to you. You are a believer in innovation, but you are also, from the beginning of the conversation, arguing for a strong role for government in spurring and inspiring and funding this move to a, a world where most of us are driving electric vehicles. So can you respond to Jonathan's point that mandates just don't have a part of this? Innovation does, mandates don't. And by mandates, we mean, just to be clear, uh, again, the sorts of things that you were talking about at the beginning of, of government programs to subsidize. Yeah, let me let me just uh, maybe just add some perspective on on sort of what the government's doing. The government, again, I'll go back to something I said earlier that the the real role here of government is just to align the rest of us on what we're trying to accomplish. What's important to the national security and the economic uh, prosperity and the environmental. Um, uh, you know, benefit of, of, of what we have here to enjoy our life here in the United States. And so the job of the government is to inspire confidence. And it's hard to do that if you're not showing by leading um, with a small, with smaller, relatively smaller investments from government. For example, this, this recent infrastructure investment of seven and a half billion dollars from the IIJA funding, it's, it's to fund primarily a large charging infrastructure network. It's going to be a better network than we have today. It replaces a very patchwork system that's out there. That in turn, I mean, look at what private the private sector is investing because of this renewed excitement and confidence in where we're headed and what problems we have to solve. GM, $35 billion. $7 billion just last week announced for Michigan alone. Ford, $50 billion. VW, $7 billion in the United States. And on and on these numbers go. The private sector is stepping up and we need to keep going back and forth. Government shows confidence. Private sector steps up to the plate. Government, you know, continues to show that sort of sustained interest and willingness to sort of uh, put those sign place, uh, signposts in front of us and the private sector will respond. So this is just a down payment on what has to happen by the private sector, no question about that. This thing doesn't get to scale or the pace required without the private sector actually taking on that responsibility. And I have a lot of faith that that is now starting to happen. And we are now finally, for the first time, seeing a path to carbon reductions by 2030 that frankly, I wasn't seeing before this, this understanding of where we're trying to get and why it's so important. And then what are all the things that have to change to get there? And, and now let's start putting those pieces together of this puzzle so that we all get there sort of in lockstep. Jonathan, if the principle that were cited in the case for subsidies were fundamentally to protect the environment, 
Does that impact your thinking in any way? I don't understand your question. If the point of subsidies, if the if the case were made that subsidies should be invoked, put in place, because the goal is not to support the wealthy or or to help the less well-off individual buy a car, but because overall it's going to be healthier for all of us to have less carbon in the air, would that be more persuasive to you? Uh, it depends on what the the cost of the subsidy is and how efficient it is at achieving the goal. And in my view, subsidizing EVs is a terrible way to reduce carbon emissions. It's not cost effective at all. And so, so no, I don't, you know, um, you can, you know, there's certainly a case for externalities and taxing them or subsidizing different sorts of technologies, but you want to do what's the most cost effective. Uh, you know, if, uh, in my view, if you want to do what's most cost effective, impose a carbon tax and let, again, let markets respond that way with that. Subsidies are well, much we would love That's a debate that we've actually done at Intelligence Squared. I'd like to refer our listeners to that one. <laughs> but for now, I want to thank Jonathan Lesser of the Manhattan Institute and Britta Gross, the Managing Director of the Rocky Mountain Institute's Carbon-Free Mobility Global Program, for joining us here at Intelligence Squared. Britta and Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shay O'Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer, and Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.